When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We've got flight cancellations Air all travel over chaos Europe, is spreading France, throughout Germany, Europe. the Netherlands. Worker strikes, walkout strikes. Thousands of flight cancellations. Travelers in Europe have less chance of actually making it to their destination. Hello and welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Josh Pisana, Politico's senior policy reporter. And this week we've got a summer travel special for you. We're talking planes, trains and automobiles. Now, unless you've been avoiding the news entirely recently, you'll surely have noticed that all is not well at airports and airlines this summer travel season. Perhaps you're listening to me while you're stuck in an airport queue somewhere, or even better, high up in the air on a long-delayed flight. Well, the idea with today's edition is that we're going to find out why this summer is turning into a bit of a nightmare for many. We'll be joined by Wizz Air CEO Joseph Ferrari, bringing our expert reporters, pit airports versus workers in a lively panel debate, and have a chat with EU blogger John Worth, who's spending this month crisscrossing the continent by train. But before we get to the trains and the planes... Let's first deal with the automobiles and say hi to podcast fan favourite Matt Karnichny, our chief Europe correspondent. Hey Matt, so you're on your summer holiday now already, right? Where are you? That's right, I am in Greece on the island of Crete near the Venetian city of Hania, which I quite recommend to people if they haven't been here. It's a beautiful place. Sounds very nice, Matt. So before you flew off on holiday, we reported out a long story on the EU's plan to ban the sale of new polluting cars and vans from 2035 onwards. That's a big deal as part of the bloc's green agenda. It's also a very big deal in Germany, historically one of the world's leaders when it comes to producing cars and an innovator when it comes to engine technology. But Germany's Porsche-loving finance minister, Christian Lindner, who of course hails from the business-friendly Free Democrats, is claiming in Berlin to have put the brakes on the plan by securing a vague commitment from lawmakers to look at a role for e-fuels. Think of those as a as-yet-undeveloped and pretty costly alternative to petrol and diesel. So, for many in Berlin, the combustion engine has been saved, while in practice in Brussels and, frankly, most other European capitals, that 2035 sales ban is pretty much fixed in place now. The full story is quite technical. It's on politico.eu from Friday morning. But Matt, has Linda been duped here, or is he just trying to spin a big defeat for a local audience? I think he's either been duped or he knew exactly what was happening and he's been trying to convince Germans that he has saved 
the internal combustion engine, and by extension, the traditional automobile, the sort of high horsepower German roadster, which is so important to the German identity for political reasons, basically, because Lindner has really been on the ropes recently because of the dire economic picture in Germany, inflation, and so forth. And he's seeing his main political rivals, the Greens, who are in coalition with him, together with the Social Democrats in Germany, obviously, really kind of race past him in the polls and also at the ballot box in a key regional election a few weeks ago. And so he's sort of looking for ways to uh, revive his party's fortune. And, uh, you know, there, there's nothing more symbolic in Germany than than the automobile. And so he seized on this issue. Yeah, it's a classic case of the reality of domestic politics compared to the nitty gritty technical lawmaking of, of what happens in the EU. And Matt, do you think the end of the sale of engine installed cars in Germany will be a big deal? Or, you know, at the end of the day, does everybody need to go electric anyway in order to save the climate? Well, I don't know if it's going to save the climate. I think it will be a big deal economically because it's worth remembering just how many jobs in Germany depend on this industry. And I'm not talking just about the large car makers. I'm talking in particular about the parts makers. And, you know, one sort of factoid here, I think, tells really the whole story, which is that an internal combustion engine has more than 200 components. And those components are made by thousands probably of little German manufacturers who have been refining this engine for over a century. An electric motor has about 20 parts. It's quite simple in comparison. And all the technology in an electric car is really in the battery. And, and that is an area where the Germans have really lagged. So it's, it's far from clear, let's say, where the German car industry is going to be headed in the electric future if it really is an electric future that we're headed towards. And some people might say, well, this was inevitable anyway, but the timing right now with the German economy really showing signs of serious stress for Lindner, whose party is all about freedom and liberal values and the market should decide and so forth, to be the one kind of swinging the axe on uh, the kind of German car of lore is definitely not a good look. And I think that several months ago when they came up with this coalition agreement, he was sort of more open to compromise because the German economy was really firing on all pistons to use an auto metaphor. And that's no longer the case. So before we let you get back to your summer holiday, Matt, what would you recommend our listeners uh, get into this summer break? Is there a specific book or maybe a TV series you've been uh, binging on recently? Well, as it happens, I mean, regular listeners will know that I am a big fan of Fauda, obviously, which I am rewatching because it's so good. But more kind of apropos to this summer, I'm reading a book called A Gentleman in Moscow by Amar Taos. It's a novel. It's set in Moscow, obviously, uh, but it's set in beginning in the 1920s, around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. And it's just a, a fascinating look at Russian culture and the Russian mentality, especially for people like me, 
who haven't really spent much time there. And uh, it's beautifully written, and it's a great beach read, or it has been so far. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, Matt, from your summer holiday. Enjoy it, and I'll see you back in Berlin soon. It's my pleasure. So, to discuss all things travel and tourism, I'm joined by our ACE Mobility reporting team. First off, Mary Eccles, our aviation reporter. Hey, Mary. Hi there, you're right. And also, Hannah Kokolaira, our freight correspondent, who knows a thing or two about rail travel too. Hey, Hannah. Hello. Both of them are very keen travellers, or actually maybe not that keen given the problems associated with travelling around Europe and beyond this year. Mary, let me start with you. What the heck is going on here at airports and with airlines across Europe? There are so many delays, so many cancellations, so many strikes. What's the problem here? So there's a few different reasons for that. As you said, there's a lot of strikes at the moment, so that's partly the reason for a lot of the delays and cancellations. But largely it is down to staff shortages within the industry. And for that, there's several reasons. I mean, quite a lot of people were laid off during the pandemic. Obviously, there were very few flights at the time, but demand has surged really quite quickly. Even on some routes, there actually there's more passengers now traveling than there were prior to the pandemic. And just to give you, I guess, a sense of the scale of the staff shortages, a few months ago, London Heathrow said they wanted to hire 14,000 staff members. In Zaventem in Brussels, they wanted to hire 1,000 people. So there's also an issue, I guess, as well with security clearances. Um, so I guess if you wanted to apply for a job in, let's say, a supermarket, chances are you'd probably actually work in behind the till within a week or two. If you want to apply for a job at an airport, you have to get a security clearance. And that process in some countries takes 14, 15, 16 weeks. So obviously, it's a really lengthy process. I guess as well, among those that did stay during the pandemic, among the workers that did stay on at airlines and the like, they have seen quite a lot of pay cuts, which haven't always been reinstated so um yeah yeah so anecdotally mary we've heard a lot of stories about how people that were put on furlough uh, during the pandemic or lost their jobs actually now that things are returning back to some semblance of normality they look at these available jobs where you have to trek out to an airport oftentimes you'll earn minimum wage and actually if you're going to do a job under those kind of conditions then it's, it's far more comfortable to work at your local supermarket bar or restaurant is that a situation you've seen spoken about by people in the industry you speak to regularly? Is that why there's such a staff shortage? Yeah, anecdotally, people say, you know, it used to be a really prestigious industry to work in, but the conditions have kind of deteriorated throughout the years. And I mean, particularly now during the pandemic or post-pandemic, rather, if you join now, you're joining an industry that's very short staffed. So naturally, it means you're going to be working a hell of a lot. You're taking on the slack of all your other colleagues. There's also been a real increase in kind of unruly and aggressive passengers. So I've seen that myself. And it's a, I guess it's a bit of a vicious cycle, really. If you're a passenger that's waiting three hours in a queue, you're getting frustrated. And maybe you haven't been at an airport for, you know, two or three years. So you don't really understand, you know, the system anymore. So it's not really the kind of environment you want to work in, I guess. So people have basically just forgotten how to behave. Basically, yeah. And Hannah, you know, this is part of a far broader point, right, is that coming out of the pandemic, we're now living in a situation of very high inflation, of a cost of living crisis. These problems around um, worker actions, of strikes, of unruly behaviour among passengers, this is not only limited to the aviation sector, right? I wouldn't necessarily say that the unruly passengers are a problem across the transport sector. 
But it's certainly true that there are shortages across the transport sector and there's quite a lot of discontent also in other transport modes. If you look, for example, at the trucking industry, there's a major shortage of truck drivers. And if you ask trade unions why that is, they point to, as Mary said, the reputation of the job having worsened massively over the past years and decades. So poor reputation and also very difficult working conditions that have only grown more difficult over the past years and during the pandemic. Mm. And when we look at the railways too, we're also seeing strike action. We're going to talk to John Worth, who's currently on a big rail trip across Europe about the broader situation on the quality of cross-border rail links. But I mean, it doesn't matter if you're going to an airport or you're trying to take a night train or a long distance train these days, there's a fair chance you're going to be hit by strike action. Hannah, do you see any improvement on the horizon in terms of the relationship between staff and transport operators generally? I think a fairly common complaint is that the price of transport does not match the cost of it. And across modes, workers, particularly workers, sometimes also industry, are saying that the price couldn't possibly allow proper working conditions for the workers providing those services. And that goes for um, truckers. But I think in aviation, that's also what workers are saying. Mm. And Mary, we saw during the pandemic, uh, there were bailouts for a lot of companies, but airlines, specifically airlines like Lufthansa, like Air France, KLM, received significant government bailouts. How was that money used? Was it not used to help pay staff and and create a better social safety net for for those who were put on furlough or who were receiving basically minimum wage for doing these jobs today? So at the beginning of the pandemic, transport unions did actually call for social strings to be attached to the national bailouts for airlines, which they say would essentially have guaranteed the jobs were secured. They say as well that that would have made sure that the industry was ready and well-staffed enough for when travel did finally pick up again. But yeah, that didn't happen and strings weren't attached to the state's support in that way. Whereas in the United States, for example, the government funding very explicitly said that the cash should go towards paying staff wages. But unions say, yeah, that in Europe it was a bit vaguer in terms of where that money should actually go. Yeah, and of course the commission officials have told me and us that they've been trying to broker some kind of deal between airports and airlines over the conditions of travel and how to improve the situations that we've we've talked about today about the delays. But there's no easy fix, right, Mary? Nothing's going to change in the next weeks. We're looking at a summer of significant travel disruption and high flight prices. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, conditions don't change overnight. So I think this is quite a long term issue. Right. And given that, guys, where are we off to on our summer holidays? Is it best just to go to the local uh, local lake if you live in Berlin or maybe to Ostend if you're there in Brussels? Mary, where are you going to? Well, I've actually just come back from Greece, which was really lovely, although I actually did have delays on both ways. And, and um, some unruly behaviour by some people on the flight. And some unruly behaviour, not by me, but that was a different passenger. But um, yeah, I actually wanted to go back to the UK to visit my friends in Scotland. But I had a look at the prices yesterday and it was really expensive. So I actually don't know now what I'm going to do. Yeah, I've not seen a flight just looking around casually. I've not seen a flight between any two destinations within Europe for under 100 euros, which is quite bizarre. Yeah. Because usually Ryanair, the low-cost EasyJet, Wizz Air, they'll be offering these cut-price deals, but it seems maybe that, that world is, is over now. We'll, we'll be talking to Wizz Air's CEO, Joseph Ferrari, about exactly this point a bit later in the podcast. Uh, and Hannah, where are you off to this summer? Well, I'm planning to go to Iceland. I'm a bit paranoid now that I might not get there. Yeah, there, there are no trains to Iceland, right? There are no trains to Iceland. I might swim. 
And how, how is it looking at flights at the moment? Well, I booked mine months ago, so I haven't recently looked. And as far as I know, they haven't been cancelled yet, so fingers crossed. But at least there did used to be a boat that left, I think, from Denmark and passed by the Faroe Islands. So technically it was possible for a while to go overland from continental Europe to Iceland. It's a plan B. All right. Well, guys, look, thanks for the chat. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. And now we're keeping our political mobility team on board for the rest of this chat. With airlines under fire for cancelled flights and other delays, we wanted to hear directly from the carriers themselves about what's going wrong. So, we spoke with the CEO of Wizz Air, Joseph Ferrari. That's a Budapest-based airline. Anyone travelling particularly in and out of Central or Eastern Europe has likely heard of them, if not travelled with them already. Hannah, Mary and I started by asking the Hungarian businessman the critical question we're trying to get to the bottom of in this episode. Who is to blame for the travel chaos we are seeing right now across Europe? both in airports and also with cancelled flights? I think the whole industry and pretty much everyone, including governments, underestimated the speed up recovery of the industry. I mean, clearly people want to fly and demand is a lot stronger than anyone anticipated before. I think we have been one of the exceptions uh, to that. We have been warning the system over the last year that uh, this air would be ramping up very quickly. Actually, we would be growing heavily. But for various reasons, I think uh, the industry and uh, politics governments were a lot more skeptical and believed that it would be a long process to recover traffic. I mean, if you look at uh, European air traffic today, it is operated at around 90% level relative to 2019 and keeps uh, ramping back up. So I think it is, to a large extent, uh, an underestimation of traffic recovery. Mm. And how do you fix that? Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, first of all, you need to put in the infrastructure to fly, and that includes uh, labor resources. Uh, you need to have the people to support the system. But the problem is that even if we are foolish stuff, we are subject to the performance of the system. I think the cornerstone issue, as we speak, is air traffic uh, management. It's a very difficult area to, uh, to train people off for jobs. It's uh, two to three years, so there is no quick fix uh, to it. And due to the shortage of capacity of air traffic controllers, we are seeing uh, very significant delays, flight cancellations as a result. And I think that's basically the, uh, the fundamental issue to the distress we are experiencing right now. But also we are seeing uh, airport labor shortages in uh, airport security, in ground handling. But I think it's a quicker fix you can deal with. But air, air traffic control is cumbersome uh, and it will remain uh, stressful. Uh, for some time before the system uh, steps up and gets people trained up for the jobs. Hi, Joseph, it's Mary. You mentioned earlier there that governments underestimated the demand. I wonder if there were things that the EU or national governments could have done to avoid some of the chaotic scenes that we've been seeing at airports. Well, I mean, airports are suffering uh, almost kind of the same way as airlines, and uh, that's kind of the consequential damage in the system. But the problem is, I really think, is is mostly with the governments because air traffic management is a state-run organization. So governments should have done a lot better uh, in terms of anticipating uh, what's coming and making sure that their organizations, their systems are up to speed to satisfy demand. One of the key reasons that we're seeing so many problems right now is the staff shortages in the industry. Why do you think that so many people are leaving aviation? <clears throat> I think the industry got into a very uncertain set of circumstances as a result of the breakout of COVID. It created a level of uncertainties that the industry reacted to by laying off people or grounding 
uh, not only fleet but also organizations and and people as a result i think the industry became somewhat unattractive to people and people were were kind of rushing out to find alternatives and and other jobs to uh, to survive especially in lower paid categories uh, so the industry lost its shine and lost its resources quite significantly during the uh, the covid times and it is difficult and it is challenging to rebuild that workforce so quickly as demand is coming back so i think that's really the uh, the fundamental issue we are uh, we are dealing with but joseph you you've come under fire for comments that you made about how your workers and and pilots should be perhaps working through fatigue in certain cases to make sure flights take off and land on time do you not agree that maybe the, these were slightly inappropriate comments to make given that everybody's under pressure in the tourism industry at the moment and there's there's a lot of industrial action going on well, I, you know, I must say that I think that uh, that comment was taken out of context. I mean, no one said, um, including myself, that, you know, people who are fatigued should be flying. As a matter of fact, uh, Bizarre has a work-plus uh, fatigue management policy. Uh, we were the very first airline in, in Europe to adopt the European guidelines on fatigue management. And I think we have a very strong culture with regard to that issue. No one has ever been requested to fly uh, when fatigued and no, no one will ever be requested to fly when fatigue. That's not the point. I think the point is that uh, whenever you can make some considerations and you are within the framework of not being fatigued, just think of the consumers, just think of the travelers, you know, the hundreds of people, the thousands of people out there. And that's it. I mean, that's what I meant on, uh, on making the extra mile. Just in terms of the summer ahead now, we're, we're halfway through the summer, we're moving into the peak season for many travellers. Do you expect that the situation at airports with flight delays, with cancellations, is going to get significantly worse before it gets better? What's the outlook for the rest of the summer? Look, I mean, I think it's a very difficult uh, question. I mean, I don't think uh, anyone should be expecting a sudden improvement. But having said that, you know, we ourselves are making significant changes to the flying patterns to make sure that we are minimising the distress, we are minimizing cancellations, we are minimizing uh, delays. It's not going to be perfect, so I don't think that we're going to be uh, having a great summer. Uh, but we are doing everything we can to make sure that we have more safety net, more buffers in the system, that if something goes wrong, we have more space and more slack to recover from that uh, situation to make less impact on the uh, on the traveling uh, public. So we are adopting, and I'm pretty sure every actor in the industry is looking at ways of adopting and trying to deal with the situation better than before. I mean, obviously, all these industrial actions and threats, especially coming out of the uh, air traffic management system, is incredibly unhelpful. And I think governments should think what they can do about it, because, uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, some interests of people might be pursued, but at the detriment of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I mean, yeah, on that point, maybe you can elaborate. What do you think governments should do to deal with the disruption, particularly around industrial action or strikes, like you mentioned? This is not the time to take actions, to be honest. I mean, uh, this is the time to uh, serve the people, the traveling public, who, who, by the way, are also voters for governments. And I think uh, the public interest is to make sure that uh, we go through this period as smooth as possible. So we don't need any further distraction. And I think government should think about a kind of a coordination role to play or even a mandating role to play here just to make sure that, you know, we are not negatively affecting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I mean, this is just a critical period. I mean, uh, the industry is coming out of a situation that was the, the single biggest negative event in the whole history of, of aviation. 
I mean, the last thing that we want to have is just, you know, getting further distressing factors at the detriment of the performance of the industry. I mean, we need help. I mean, we need a unity. We need kind of a common goal to try to get through this uh, this period. And once we are back into normal, yes, I mean, some normal practices might be uh, reinstated. But uh, I think at this point in time, the interest of the public is to perform as best as we can, as opposed to getting further distracted. Joseph, a, a final question from my side. You hear a lot these days in Brussels and across the EU about how rail can take market share from flights. You obviously fly a lot of relatively short haul routes through Europe. Are you worried about a rise in passenger numbers for night trains and high speed rail? Do you think that's going to cut into Wizz Air's market share moving forward? Oh, not at, not at all. I mean, we don't have a single service where there is a train alternative for a travel time of, of less than four hours. So I think it's great if the trade system gets uh, developed in Europe. I mean, obviously, the cost of that development has to be taken into account and the cost to passengers needs to be taken into account as well. But yes, I mean, I agree. I think for uh, short haul, very short haul travel, the train is a very effective uh, vehicle. And certainly that would be a very welcome development in Europe. But we would be completely unaffected by them. Understood. Joseph Ferrari from Wizz Air, thank you very much for your time and good luck keeping the, uh, the flights running this summer. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break are the days of cheap air travel, where the flight often costs less than the price of a currywurst behind us. And if train travel sounds more appealing these days, I certainly wouldn't blame you for thinking so. You don't want to miss these top three routes to take in Europe later this summer. Are they in Spain, Switzerland, Slovenia? Stay with us to find out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, let's follow up on these issues with our panel debate. Hannah and Mary are still with me, and we're joined by Olivier Jankovic, who runs Airport Lobby ACI Europe, and Livia Sperra, Acting General Secretary of the European Transport Workers Federation. Thanks both for your time. Our pleasure. Olivier, if I can start with you, the airlines say that they fixed their summer transport schedule already in March, giving the airports plenty of time to staff up and make sure they were able to deal with the kind of capacity and, uh, and traveller numbers that we're now seeing. Why are there so many delays at big hub airports? Well, I think first, the, the thing is that the delays and the operational difficulties we're experiencing and that are impacting civilly passengers are down to staff shortage across the entire aviation ecosystem. So it's not just airports, but it's ground handlers, it's airlines, it's ATC, and also border control to some extent. It's true, the airlines uh, filed their schedule in March for the summer, 
But the thing you have to take into account is that throughout the recovery and the pandemic, actually, those schedules have been highly unstable. And uh, what we've been faced is with schedules which look very ambitious and that were systematically cut in the past by the airlines. So those schedules are not necessarily very reliable in terms of planning how you much scale up uh, your facilities and your resources. The second aspect for airports is that hiring people to work at the airport is not exactly like hiring people to work downtown in a supermarket or a restaurant, because we are highly regulated space, which means that we need to have mandatory training for our staff, which takes time. And above all, we need to get security clearance from competent authorities, which can take up to three or four months. So if we would have had to scale up resources at a level that would match the traffic we have today, actually, we would have had to start recruiting in January. And in January, we were in the middle of the Omicron wave with absolutely no visibility as to when travel restrictions would be lifted. Mm. Understood. And then, Livia, from your side, I mean, anecdotally, we hear a lot of suggestion that many jobs in the aviation industry these days, they're just not that desirable. They're not very well paid. It means having to transit out of a big city to a big concrete block uh, in the form of an airport and do often antisocial shifts. Is the industry facing a problem with, with how it can recruit staff back and draw people into the industry after the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. There is a problem of retention, rather, because the people who left the, or we were forced to left the industry are not able to join anymore. The labor market is tight everywhere. So if you have to choose between having a short-time, part-time contract, working on social working hours and working in the city, so not having to buy a car, because normally you need a car to go and work at the airport, uh, being paid more, having a more stable contract, then there is an easy choice. Also, in the wake of the inflation increase that we are uh, having over the last month. So it's. I think this is the perfect storm, but in fact, it doesn't come out of the blue. The problem with the shortage of good jobs is all over the industry. It's not just at the airports. So that's why what you are saying is that, first of all, we need at the moment for this acute phase, we need to have collective bargaining. We need to have discussions with the unions, between the unions and the different employers around the table. But then we need to look at the structural problems. And this doesn't have to be forgotten once the summer troubles will be away. Right. And just to be clear here, because you and Olivier obviously agree on a few things in terms of the structural problems in the market, but typically in a tight labor market, that means increased wages. And I suppose you are demanding increased wages and better conditions for all staff at airports. Uh, And that's something the industry would perhaps say is very difficult to offer at the moment. But that's why structural changes are required. I mean, I think all parts of aviation, all uh, Many companies in the aviation ecosystem have been working on very tight margins, very tight profits over the last 20 years since the various waves of liberalization have changed the sector. And so the industry is not resilient. Over to you, Mary. Olivier, so we spoke earlier with Joseph Arradi from Wizz Air. He said that now isn't the time for transport workers to go on strike given the staff shortages in the industry and the need for the sector to recover. What do you make of those comments? Well, of course, as, as airport operators, you know, I think we, we would agree that now is not the time to strike, uh, of course. Now is the time to, of course, find solutions together across the sector And there are discussions to be had for certain jobs at certain airports with certain ground handlers on social conditions. But clearly, strikes is 
at the moment, if we look at the peak summer months, uh, strikes would only make things worse for passengers. And that's not what we want. And Livia, you represent transport workers. What would you say in response to that? Well, the right to strike is a fundamental right, so it's not up to Mr. Varadi or to any other of his colleagues to uh, rule on this. I would say that unions never take strikes lightly. Workers do not take strikes lightly. When workers strike, they're not paid. So it's not something that we uh, decide, that the board member decide upon just to have fun. It's something that happens when no other solution is possible, when we try to negotiate and we didn't manage. Understood. And Hannah, over to you. So we've seen quite a bit of chaos already, and it certainly looks like there's going to be more disruption this summer. So Livia, what would your advice be to our listeners? Um, is it a good idea to fly this summer, or would it be smarter to stay close to home? Well, I, I think you're jumping to conclusions by saying there will be more chaos this summer, because the whole ecosystem, all the partners are working really hard to make sure we can solve these issues wherever they can be solved. So I think over the coming weeks, we should see some improvement, hopefully. I'm not saying the improvement will be across the board everywhere and will go back to, you know, perfectly smooth operation across the board. But I think you will see improvement coming at some airports over the summer. Livia, what's your estimate? What's your prediction for the summer? Well, if I look at what's happening, there are uh, some agreements that have been uh, reached in some of our airports uh, in some countries and I think that that's the way forward. What I want to say is that these problems were pre-existing. All these problems existed before COVID and that COVID has just exacerbated a situation that was already very, very tight. Would both of you agree, obviously not representing an airline specifically, that perhaps getting a €7.99 ticket from Brussels, where you guys are now, to Romania is perhaps a, a thing of the past? I hope so. We have been uh, advocating for a fair price of uh, plane tickets already for many years. Now we are talking about internalization of environmental costs, which is good, but we also have to internalize social costs, labor costs, because we can't expect to take a plane at €10.99 and then to have staff on board the plane and at the airport, because often airport staff is forgotten, that are paid a decent wage. There are some countries that have been discussing this already in Germany and in Austria. The proposal is on the table, but there is a need for having a political discussion about the price of tickets. I would agree with with Livia that we have a a series of new fundamentals and structural factors that will push the price of air travel up. So the, the cost of air travel is bound to increase. So if I understand both of you correctly, probably the days of a flight ticket costing less than the price of a sandwich inside an airport is soon going to be behind us. Is that right? Well, we'll see. I think it's it's difficult to exactly assess how much air transport will uh, cost will increase and, and airfare will increase. But I mean, we, we've done some study on our side, uh, looking at in particular the impact of Fit for 55. And uh, we see potentially on on direct flights an increase of 17% in airfares by 2050, just because of the cost of Fit for 55. Let me add just one thing. At the moment, prices are going up because capacity is being reduced. So it's not because of environmental costs or social costs. That's what uh, we should also think about. Yeah. Now it's a market, basically it's a market uh, game that is being played by the airlines. Thanks to Olivier and Livia for that debate. 
And now we're going to take you on a train journey through Europe. Leading the way is John Worth, a long-time blogger on EU politics and European affairs, and now a consultant based, like me, in Berlin. We wanted to check in with John in this episode to bring us up to speed on some of the challenges faced by the rail industry as it seeks to win market share on intercity routes in Europe from airlines. John is currently halfway through a summer project, taking trains exclusively across EU borders to see just how easy it is to get around the block by train. Hey John, where are you now? So I'm uh, doing a podcast here from Madrid, Atocha Station. I arrived in Spain from Portugal, and then later on today I'm heading onwards to France. I'm halfway through my project uh, at the time I'm talking to you. So what exactly is this cross-border rail project all about? The project basically it crosses every internal border of the European Union that you can cross by train. That doesn't mean every single line, but it does just try to give an overview of what a border connection is like between Spain and Portugal or Latvia and Lithuania, for example. And in the project, I'm trying to get a bit of a mix of all of the different problems and all of the different possible solutions, depending upon the exact place where I'm going on a given day. Right. And so you've obviously been posting recently about the Iberian Peninsula and how few rail links there are, for example, between Spain and Portugal. Where are the best places you reckon in, are in Europe for cross-border rail links and where are the worst? So the one that I like very much is the Denmark-Sweden border across the Öresund Bridge. Um, the important point there is it, it runs very, very regularly for commuters. There's a train there every 20 minutes, making it one of the very best cross-border lines that there is. And it basically means that if something goes wrong, which actually happened to me when I was crossing there, my train got cancelled, the next one comes around pretty soon and therefore you're absolutely fine. By contrast, if you're at the border between Latvia and Lithuania, for example, there there are no trains at all. And when I crossed there, um, I actually took the bicycle to go across the border. But there were people literally walking across the border there from the last bus station on the Latvian side to the first uh, train station on the Lithuanian side. So that's at the other end of the spectrum. There, it's a, an absolute catastrophe. Nothing works in cross-border rail. When you come to the long-distance things, the things that would really replace a plane, there, the Austrians are absolutely the best people. They're the ones that have got a really, really good approach to all of their neighboring countries. And so if you're starting or ending in Vienna, then you've got a, a really great selection of railway connections from there. Right. And so who's to blame for the poor state of the railways in some countries and some regions, for example? Is it the European Commission or is it, is it member states? I would put the blame to a greater extent of, of historically looking back on member states. And by member states, I mean also national railway companies and national governments. It's partly an operational and partly a political problem. What I've learned from this project so far is many of the cross-border rail problems stem from the country on one side of the border wanting to solve the problem, but the country on the other side not giving a damn. Now, responding to your question about the European Commission, the European Commission has largely aimed to solve these issues by pouring money into infrastructure, so into the tracks. But the problem is, is we have places like the line that I'm due to take uh, later on today uh, at the, the border between Figueras in Spain and Perpignan in France, where the EU has built an impeccable bit of infrastructure, but basically no trains run there. And so that's my core demand to the European Commission is it's not enough to say, hey, let's actually build a line. We've got to actually make sure that some trains actually run on it. Now, that might sound kind of absurd if you've got a good track, but you don't have any trains there. But that actually happens in a bunch of different borders around the EU. 
So what I want from the European Commission is a more cohesive approach to railway policy. It's not only about the lines, it's about making sure that the trains that run on those lines are good and are appropriate, that the timetables work, and finding about information if in the case of a disruption should be easy, and that getting a ticket for those trains should be simple as well. Yeah, and so you obviously have a lot more trains to take on your cross-border rail project, and good luck with that, John. However, we're approaching the summer holiday season. I presume many of our listeners have already booked their holiday plans. If they haven't, what are the three top rail routes through Europe you would recommend? Right, so I'm going to recommend two that I've done already in this project and one other which is a personal favourite. So the route across Spain, I boarded in Zaragoza and I took the slow train to Vigo uh, in Galicia. This was an impeccable journey. You had everything outside the window, mountain passes, gorges, rivers. It was wonderful and a kind of a view into how that kind of another Spain lives. I also took the train from Tornio in northern Finland to Helsinki, which is the very best night train I have ever taken. This thing is extraordinary. The carriages are modern, they're really big. There's a wonderful dining car in the train as well. You can get it, you can even get it. So midnight sun through the dining car window, having a beer there before settling into the night train for the night. That's a wonderful experience. So any night train route in Finland, I can highly recommend it. And the third is, is an area of Europe where some of the best hidden gems of European railways are to be found is in Slovenia. So I would highly recommend the riverside route between Jesenica, which is on the border to Austria, close to Villa, to Novogorica in um, Slovenia. Not least because also Novogorica is a wonderful and historic town where the border of Italy and Slovenia goes through the square right in front of the railway station. But that railway route through the mountains of Slovenia takes about three hours, basically follows a river that more or less the whole way um, and is, is a joy um, out of the window. So those are the three I would recommend. Zaragoza de Vigo in Spain, Tornio to Helsinki in Finland, and Jesenica to Novogorica in Slovenia would be three top tips I would have for your listeners if they want to plan some good railway routes this summer. Thanks a lot, John, for your time. You might not be welcome back to Switzerland anytime soon after leaving their mountain railways off your top tips uh, list. But good luck with the rest of your trip. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thanks a million to John for joining us from Madrid. That's all the time we have on this summer edition of EU Confidential. I hope you found it box office. Maybe you're listening to us on your holiday right now, or maybe you like us here on the podcast team, still on the clock for a few more weeks, plotting just how to make the most of the situation we just unpacked for you. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. I'm Josh Pisana here in Brussels today. Thanks this week to our political mobility team, Hannah and Mary, for joining me for the interviews we carried out. Also to podcast intern Namratha Prasad, our editor James Randerson, and our executive producer Christina Gonzalez, who also scripted the various puns you heard on today's Travel Focus podcast. And thanks to you, our dear listeners, for tuning in. Over and out. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 